All right, listen, all good things uh, must come to an end. And so sadly must our, our 13-month um, long series through the book of Mark. Maybe some of you aren't so sad. Uh, 13 months is a long time. But I am very, very um, sad. Uh, my understanding of the identity and the mission of Jesus has increased greatly through this study. And my prayer is that yours has as well. Uh, Melissa and the girls and I will be on vacation um, next Sunday. We get to head down to North Carolina. My family's coming in um, from London. So my brother's family lives. We're all meeting down there to get some time um, together. So, so thank you um, for being a church that wants um, your pastor to get breaks and get rest. That's good for me. That's really good um, for you guys. Um, a good friend of mine who's a pastor at a church over in Jersey um, is coming um, to preach um, for you next week. And listen, this guy is a much better preacher than I am. Um, so you're in luck as long as you agree to not hire him instead of me. Um, he's really, really excellent. Um, so you guys will be blessed um, by his coming. And then two weeks from today, when I'm back um, the next week, um, we're going to start a short kind of four-week series um, through the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth is just a fantastic um, story. And it's a really good, easy kind of introduction um, to the Old Testament. Um, Christians don't read the Old Testament. They're scared of the Old Testament. So we're going to kind of ease into it. Um, with Ruth, I'm kind of really focusing on how Ruth um, teaches us about Jesus Christ, teaches us about the gospel, even a thousand years um, before Christ. So crack open Ruth for the next two weeks, start reading it. You can read it in just a few minutes. Um, so read it a few times, and then we'll, we'll tackle that book here in two weeks. But first, uh, we got business. We've got to wrap things up here in Mark. Um, so take out um, your copies of the Word and begin turning to Mark chapter 15, um, starting in verse 40 which you can find on page 853 in the Pew Bible. We're going to go from 15, verse 40, all the way to the end of the book at chapter 16, verse 8. Now, that statement itself um, requires a bit of explanation. Um, and I really need you guys to pay attention and bear with me here. Right? This, this has the potential to be a little bit difficult. I remember many, many, many months ago, um, back at the beginning of our series in Mark, we talked about how we got the Bible, how we have our, our Bibles, right? You're holding an English translation of the Bible. It didn't just magically fall down um, from the sky. The Bible wasn't written in English. So how did we get these English Bibles, right? Well, Mark wrote his gospel in Greek um, somewhere in the mid to late 50s, right? So we're talking 25 to 30 years after the life of Jesus. We don't have the original book that Mark wrote. Right? We don't have the original copies of a single one of the 66 books of the Bible. Is that a problem? Not at all, because we have thousands and thousands of copies of them so that we can know with certainty what the originals said. Right? The New Testament is far and away the most reliable um, and well-attested of the ancient documents. Right? All other works of ancient literature just pale in comparison. In Latin, in my college courses, we had to read Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, right? Historians love Caesar's Gallic War. They always go to it, and it's trustworthy, and they like it. We have ten copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and the earliest copy we have is a thousand years after he originally wrote it. We have over 5,000 copies of various forms of the New Testament. And those copies date to, at their earliest to less than 100 years after the originals, right? So we don't need the originals. Remember, we used the illustration if we all sat in a room with a copy of John and we all, like 10 of us, wrote out by hand that copy of John, right? What would we get? Well, we'd get 10 slightly different copies of John. Um, but if we took away the original, 
we can still figure out what the original said by comparing those ten copies, right? No one would make the same mistakes in the same spot. So there's one mistake here, there's nine correct ones here, well this is obviously the correct one, you don't have to worry about this mistake here. And that is kind of how we get our English Bibles. Because think about it, they had no printing presses, no copying machines back then. So Mark writes his one original letter right to the church in Rome, someone gets a hold of that letter, and they make a copy of it, and someone makes a copy of that, someone makes a copy of that, and on and on and on and on. And in that process, listen, there were just naturally some spelling errors and some mistakes. You skip a line when you copy things and, and things of that nature, right? So that happened. But it, it has no bearing whatsoever on the text, right? We, we, with all the copies we have, we can lay them out and compare them and know which is the original and which one is accurate, right? So trust your Bibles 100%. But there are these small handfuls of little areas where there is some disagreement and some question about the original text. And I say all of that to get us to the end of Mark. Because of these few small areas of discrepancy, this is the biggest one, hands down. Right? This is it. Right? When people talk about the Greek Bible and into the English and they argue about it, this is what they come to. Right? This is the difficult text. If you're reading um, from the King James Version, you're not going to even see anything different um, about the end of Mark. But if you take out a pew Bible, at least, and open it up, or look at basically any other translation, you're going to see something different. Right? Look at page 853 um, towards the bottom. The text stops after verse 8, and then there are some brackets that say, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And now listen, this, I understand, is very difficult um, for some to swallow, right? Mark originally ended his book when he first wrote it at verse 8, right? Someone later on decided to add verses 9 and following to it, right? It was not there as part of the original. It is not part of inspired, inerrant scripture. And how do we know that? The ancient manuscripts, right? Verses 9 and following don't show up in any of the oldest and in any of the most reliable manuscripts, right? It first shows up hundreds of years later, right? And the King James includes it because they only had a few manuscripts when they translated the King James. Now, 400 years later, we have thousands of more uh, manuscripts, and a lot of those manuscripts are much older. We have older and more reliable manuscripts, and none of them have these verses. There's a famous historian named Eusebius, one of the most important early church historians, and in the year 400, he wrote, Indeed, the accurate copies conclude the story according to Mark with the words, They were afraid. That's what verse 8 says. For the end is here in nearly all of the copies of Mark. Right? So verses 9 and following simply just are not there in the oldest manuscripts. Right? The oldest manuscripts are the ones closest to the date that the original was written, so they are the more reliable. Plus, if you go read the longer ending, it just doesn't make any sense um, in context. First of all, it's written nothing like Mark writes. He used dozens of new words that he's not used a single time in the rest of the book. All of a sudden, they start just popping up here in the ending. And if you read from verse 8 to verse 9, it's clear that it was just tacked on to the end. Right? Verse 8 is talking about the women. They're the subject of verse 8. But all of a sudden, the subject just changes in verse 9 to he. He who? There's no transition. It doesn't tell us because someone just attached it to the end. Verse 9 also introduces us to Mary Magdalene as the one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. It sounds like it's first introducing us to Mary Magdalene. 
She's just been mentioned three times in the last few verses. Right? And all of a sudden, here he is again, introducing her again, because this wasn't in the original. Plus, it just gets weird in verse 18, right? Jesus said, hey, you can pick up and handle snakes, and you don't have to worry about getting bitten, right? That's really big in the south, uh, where I'm from in the mountains. People are always handling snakes and doing weird things. Well, listen, it wasn't originally in, in the Bible, so don't go handle snakes. You're going to get bitten. Um, so, the point is that Mark originally ended his gospel in verse 8. And listen, this isn't just something that I'm making up and coming here and telling you. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not an expert on this stuff. This is the general consensus of both Christian and non-Christian scholars and theologians. I have eight commentaries on Mark, all written by conservative Christian theologians, and every single one of them argues that Mark ends at verse 8. Right? Verse 9 through 16, 20... They're at it later, right? And so since Mark originally ended his book at verse 8, we are going to end our sermon series at verse 8, right? We hammer expositional preaching over and over again. We take a copy of the scripture and we explain it. Who cares what I have to say? Let's explain what the Bible says. Well, listen, uh, if this isn't part of inspired scripture, we're not going to spend our time on it, right? It was added later. So we're going to end in verse 8. Now listen, I understand completely and completely expect that to be difficult. So please come find me afterwards. We'll talk through it in more um, detail, and I'd love to answer some of your questions um, about that. But as you're going to see, verse 8 ends very strangely and very abruptly. That's why someone years later decided to tap on an ending um, to it. But I think that Mark intentionally ends the book the way that he did. And so I want to show you why he does that. And I want to show you what that means for us as we wrap up this, this amazing book. Right, so that's a long introduction. But it's a really important issue um, worth discussing. If we can't talk about these things in the church, then we can't talk about them anywhere. Uh, I, my first, this was never mentioned to me, and I got to school in a New Testament class in college, and the professor said, your Bibles are all wrong. And no one had ever taught me or explained to me anything about this stuff. Um, and actually, they're not wrong at all. Um, so we need to discuss this here and see why our Bibles are accurate and why they um, say what they say. So let's talk more about that afterwards. Um, but look down there at the text, um, starting in Mark um, 15, verse 40 all the way through to 16, um, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we begin. Father, we thank you um, for the opportunity um, to sit and to um, listen um, to your word. Father, it's not about me, it's not about what I think, Father, but it's about you and your word. So I ask that you um, would speak in this time. I have no ability whatsoever to convince anyone in here of these truths. I cannot um, change hearts, I cannot save sinners, um, Lord, but you can, you do it um, through your word. And Father, I ask that that's what you do here um, this morning. Father, glorify Jesus Christ. Um, show us what he has done for us and show us um, how we are to respond um, to him. For all of this, in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so last week we ended in verse 39, instead of verse 41, where kind of the, the text in the P Bible breaks up. Well, we did this because Mark, in classic Mark faction, closes his book with another of what we've been calling these, these sandwiches, right? These Markin sandwiches. He, he does this a lot of times in his book. It's his favorite literary technique. Remember, he starts one story, then he interrupts it with a second story, and then he comes back and concludes that first story. And he does this for the purpose of comparison, right? The two stories inform each other. Think back to the temple and the fig tree in Mark chapter 11. Remember, Jesus goes to the temple. Then there's this strange story where he comes out and he curses and kills a fig tree. And then he goes back to the temple and flips over tables and drives people out. First story, second story, then back to the first story. And the two explain each other. Right? The cursing of the fig tree in the middle explains what Jesus is doing in the temple. He is cursing the temple. He is not cleansing the temple. He is pronouncing God's judgment on it, and it's coming in. Right? Well, here we have Mark's final sandwich. It goes, women, Joseph, women. And these two different parties react very differently um, to the events here at the end of the book. And I think that it is these two reactions that help explain the strange way that Mark ends his book. So all I want to do for the rest of our time is look briefly at the resurrection itself and then the response. Resurrection, response. And there are two responses that Mark portrays here. He gives us fear and then he shows us faith. Right, but let's start, let's jump to the end and start with the resurrection. The, the account of it here is just, it's very Mark-like, isn't it? Right? We're just, there's, there's no detail. We're, there's, there's no big buildup, no fanfare, no fireworks. It's all very matter-of-fact. Remember back in 1525, he simply says, and they crucified him. Well, 16.6 simply says, he is risen, he is not here. That's it. This is the most important thing that has ever happened. Um, and Mark doesn't dwell on it. And, but it is an absolutely remarkable event. Remember, three times in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus had specifically taught his disciples about his upcoming suffering and death. Right? Well, we understand that. We get that now. Right? We, we talk about the cross of Christ all the time. But each of those three times, he also very specifically teaches them about his resurrection. 8.31, and after three days he will rise again. 9.31, after three days 
he will rise. 10, 34, and after three days he will rise. Right? We talk about the death on the cross of Jesus Christ all the time, but for some reason Christians don't talk nearly as often about the resurrection. And this will not do. Right? The cross without the resurrection is absolutely meaningless. Right? He's just another of the hundreds of thousands of people that the Romans crucified on crosses. Right? He, he just deserves to be forgotten if there was no resurrection. But it is the resurrection that changes everything. Right? Christianity is a resurrection religion. When the apostles first went out preaching, they preached the resurrection. This is what sets us apart, right? This is the difference between us and everyone else. He has risen. Jesus is alive. Every other founder and every other religious leader is dead, right? Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Abraham, all of those guys are equally dead and buried. It is only Christianity that makes the audacious claim that Jesus is still alive. And listen, if that's true, it changes everything. Right? If Jesus said he was God in the flesh, that he had come to rescue sinners, that he was your only hope of salvation, and then he actually died, and he actually came back to life, then you have to listen to him. Right? If he was right about the resurrection, then he was right about everything else as well. And the one thing that you cannot afford to do is ignore him. Seriously. I want you to think about it. Because basically everyone in here would affirm that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, oh yeah, I believe Jesus came back from the dead. But, but really consider that, right? Do you actually believe that? Because it's a little bit crazy, right? Do you actually believe that 2,000 years ago a man performed all these amazing miracles? He loved and he served the down and out. He taught with his unmatched authority. He claimed to be God himself come to the earth to die in the place of his people. Do you really believe all that? Do you believe that 2,000 years ago, a dead man actually came back to life and walked out of a tomb? Because if you do, that should radically change how you live. If he is alive, you better be doing everything that you possibly can to make sure that you're on his side. The resurrection is at the very heart of what we believe, right? It's not just an Easter thing. It is an everyday thing. We are here worshiping on a Sunday because of the resurrection. The Jewish people worship on Saturday, but from the very beginning, the church shifted the day to Sunday because that was the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. This is the resurrection religion. Everything hinges on the resurrection. If it happened, everything else, you must consider everything else. Right? If it didn't happen, this whole Jesus and Christianity thing is a complete waste of time. I've wasted my whole life and my job is worthless. Right? That's what Paul says. Right? Paul just said that in the passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Thanks, Paul. Um, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing. A famous philosopher about 200 years ago, not quite, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he once said, the central question of humanity is whether or not Jesus rose again on Easter morning. How we understand that one question determines how we will answer every other question. Right? This is just important, life-altering stuff. Right? The, the gospel without resurrection is not just the gospel without its final chapter. No, it's just not the gospel at all. Right? There is no gospel 
without the resurrection. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. And there is no hope without the resurrection. As we talked about three months ago at Easter, right? The resurrection is so important because it gives us that hope. And we talked about how hope is far more important um, than we all think that it is. First, why does the resurrection give us hope? Well, we've seen that the express purpose for Jesus' coming at all um, was in 1045. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? That ransom word is really, really important. Right? What he's doing here is it's an exchange. Right? It is a life for a life. He is purchasing us. He is buying us back. He is rescuing us. He is making the payment for our sin. Why then is the resurrection so important? Because the resurrection is the confirmation that God has accepted the payment, right? The transaction is complete. It truly is finished. The resurrection is like God's rubber stamp. It is His validation of Jesus' work in your place. God says, yes, I have accepted that on your behalf. Thus, if you are His, your future is absolutely secure. It is guaranteed, and that should give you great hope. And that hope should affect how you live your life now. Listen, you've got to have hope in something to function. And the resurrection is the only place that you can get any sort of real and lasting hope. Back at Easter, I shared with you one of my favorite um, Keller illustrations, but it's so good um, and I'm going to share it with you again. It, it illustrates a really, really good and important point that we missed. Remember, it was about, about two women. Two women who were working the exact same job. Uh, miserable job, right? Mindless, menial, mind-numbing, boring job. 90 hours a week, um, no vacation, everything about it is awful, unfulfilling, and meaningless, right? There's only one difference between the two women. One woman is told that she's going to be paid $20,000 for her year of work, while the other woman is told that she's going to be paid $200 million for her year of work, right? How would these two women approach their exact same job? Completely differently. Right? The woman making $20,000 would be absolutely, miserably bored and unhappy. Um, she won't even make it through the year. Right? This is not worth my time for $20,000. Right? But the other one, man, the other one would just be an absolute delight. Right? She would just be full of joy and happiness. She's always on time. She's, she's whistling all day at work. She's kind and she's friendly to everyone. She happily works all day, every day, and makes it through the year with ease. The exact same job with the exact same circumstances. What's the difference? The difference is hope. Right? She knows that all she has to do is get through one year and she will be absolutely set for the rest of her life. One year for a life of reward. So you see, it's not your circumstances that affect how you live and make you feel how you feel, right? Circumstances are not the determining factor. You can have two different people in the exact same circumstances, but they be fundamentally different because of where their hope lies, right? What you believe about your future is actually what determines your attitude and how you respond to your circumstances in the present. That's how the resurrection changes us. It gives us an imperishable hope, a guarantee of something that is far more valuable than $200 million. It is a promise of eternal life and relationship with God. And a blissful eternity, no sin, no pain, no suffering, no death. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Then has that belief had any effect 
upon your life? Do you have that hope that only the resurrection can give? Because without hope, your life is going to be really, really difficult. You've got to have hope in something. And the resurrection is the only solid rock. Right? Uh, that's, that's the rock. Jesus Christ, what He has done in our place. Right, so that's the resurrection. But let's look um, briefly at the two opposite responses to it that Mark depicts for us here in this kind of final sandwich. Right, let, me, let me start with the women. Mark introduces us um, to this group of women very suddenly and says that they have been following and ministering to Jesus. This is the first time Mark mentions that. He hasn't told us about these um, women before. And there is some debate over what Mark is trying to say with his betrayal of these women. But I think that the contrast of Joseph in the middle of the story makes it clear. First of all, listen, they're there at least. Right? That's, that's good. Right? That's a lot more than can be said for the disciples. Right? The disciples are nowhere to be found. Right? But don't miss the important marker there in verse 40. It says, they were looking on from a distance. Uh, that, that's intentional. Right? We've, we've seen this before, remember, after the arrest in 14 verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance. Well, listen, we saw how that turned out. Right? Peter just flat out denied that he even knew um, Jesus Christ three times in a row. So these women are also following at a distance. That seems to have a bit of a negative connotation. They, they witnessed the crucifixion. And then verse 47 tells us that they witnessed where Jesus was buried. And that brings us to chapter 16. He died on Friday afternoon. Right? Then from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is the Sabbath. Right? No work. Um, limited activity or movement. So after the Sabbath is over, on sundown Saturday night, some of these women, they go out, they buy some spices and oils and whatever, and then they get ready to go on the following morning. But the fact that they buy these spices and oils is it's significant, right? They're, they're not going to check the tomb to see if Jesus was right. Oh, let's, let's go see. He said three days. Let's go see if he's, he's come back to life. No, they think they're going to, to take care of his corpse. Right? Resurrection is not even on their radar. And they, they buried people differently back then than we do um, today. We've, got, we've found a bunch of these tombs still around um, Jerusalem. They were family tombs. You walked into this pretty big room, and there was a table um, somewhere in that room. Um, and that's where you would lay the body. But this wasn't like Egyptian embalming, right? The point of Egyptian embalming was to preserve the body. No, when Jewish burials, they would leave the body there until it had completely decayed and there was only the bones, right? And this was obviously a long and smelly process, right? So they anointed the body with spices and oils to kind of try and mask the smell, right? Then, once only the bones were left, someone would enter back in, they would collect the bones, and they would put them in this little bone box, an ossuary. A few years ago, actually, about 10 years ago, they found one of these boxes. It was about 2,000 years old, I'm pretty sure. And on the side of the box, written in Hebrew, it said, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. That's really interesting. Right? Some just are sure that it's authentic. Others say, no, there's, there's no way um, that it is. But it would be really, really, I don't know the answer, so don't come looking to me for it. Um, but it would be really, really interesting is it, if it was. But that's what they're doing. They're preparing their body, Jesus' body, for this. To leave it to decay, and then they're going to collect and put his bones um, in a box. So that, that's what the plan is here. Resurrection is not on their radar. In their minds, he's dead, and he is not coming back. 
So early morning, they head up um, to the tomb. They're not sure what they're even going to do about the large stone covering the door. But when they arrive, right, their problem has been taken care of for them. It's open. So they enter, and they see a young man dressed in a white robe. Um, some of you are actually trying to say this is Mark. Um, it's not. Um, I don't think it is. Remember Mark fled earlier? The young man fled, and they took his cloak, and then he was naked. Well, now here's a young man with a white cloak on him. So somebody, oh, it's, it's Mark. It's not. Um, it is, I think it's, it's got to be an angel. Um, this is, I think, pretty clearly an angel. Um, and he says he's the one that delivers the good news to them in verse 6. It says, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. There's the good news, right? There's the best news. He's not here. Jesus was right. He is who he said that he was, and he did what he said he would do. But we've already covered that. What's so interesting here is the women's response to this really, really good news. And this is how Mark concludes his whole book with verse 8. There are six signals in this one verse of the women's fear. Verse six or verse eight says, And they went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. That's it. Can you see why some scribe many years later is like, I'm gonna tidy this up a little bit. I'm gonna I'm going to add something here um, to the end, make this a little bit more um, clean and neat. Why in the world would Mark end his brilliant book like this, with the women fleeing, trembling, saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid? Why no resurrection appearances? Why no consolation? Why no great commission? Why no ascension back into heaven? Because first of all, this is, this is Mark, right? And this ending actually makes perfect sense in light of Mark's style and Mark's purpose in writing. Remember, the whole book is much shorter and more condensed than the other Gospels. Right? Mark is he's a man of action. No frills, no details. He just moves quickly from one thing to the next. Mark is very abrupt. Right? He, he begins very abruptly. Right? we got fancy introductions in Matthew and Luke and John. About all these birth stories and John's got this brilliant kind of theology at the beginning. No, Mark just says, oh, and there's John the Baptist and Jesus is getting baptized by him. He begins very abruptly and thus he ends abruptly as well. This is just how Mark writes. Some scholars have argued for just the literary genius of Mark's original ending and its artistic brilliance. But why? What does this end accomplish? Uh, I think exactly what Mark wants it to. The best way that I could think of it was to think of it like a movie. Right? I really like going to movies. I don't ever get to do it anymore because we have kids and we're busy. Um, but every now and then I sneak out and go see a movie at like 11 and leave Melissa at home or something. Because um, I, I just like movies. Um, but I don't ever get to watch them. But it's really nice you know, when you, when you see a movie and everything kind of re resolves and wraps up perfectly kind of right, right at the two hour mark. Right? You don't want to be there too long. Two hours is perfect. Everything comes together. It's just this nice, happy ending. You were entertained. You were satisfied. Everything was pleasant. But if you're anything like me, right, you, you quickly kind of forget these movies. Right? I consider a movie to be really good if I find myself thinking about that movie the next day and the day after that. Right? That's when I know it was a really good movie. And you know what, you know what movies most often have that effect on me? Surprise, unexpected endings. Right? Cliffhangers. And what happens when you watch a movie like that? You want to watch it again. Right? Your, your first thought, wait, 
wait a minute, what, what just happened? I didn't see that coming at all, right? Such an ending sends me back to reconsider the whole movie. It sends me back to, to contemplate, to try and figure it out, and to see what I missed. I wasn't planning on this, but I just thought of the movie, someone just incepted in my mind, the movie Inception. Did anyone see that movie? It's weird, right? And, and you get to the end, and you're like, wait a second, what's going on? And then when you do after, you spend an hour talking about it with friends, going back over everything that just happened in the movie and trying to figure it out. And then you just got to go see it again to figure out what it is. That's exactly what Mark is doing with his ending. Right? This abrupt ending forces you to react. It forces you to choose. And it does so by driving you back to the rest of the story. Right? It's, it's like a loop. The end sends you back to the beginning. Wait a second, Mark. What? What just happened? Why'd you end it like that? What, what is this all about? Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 9, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Right? The answers are all there, right? And the ending forces you to go back and re-examine those answers for yourself. It forces you to decide for yourself, who do you say that I am? It's a brilliant ending because it just makes you want more. Like what happens? What happens next? The answers are all in the text. Go back and read it again. Just because we preached through Mark for 13 months doesn't mean you're allowed to leave Mark alone for the next couple of years. No. Still read it. There's so much more that we have missed. Right? So the choice that it forces you to choose between is, are you going to respond like the women do here in fear and flight? Listen, you might not be afraid of Jesus, but I would maintain that you are actually a lot more afraid of Jesus than you like to think, uh, and than we like to admit to ourselves. Because listen, if he is alive, then he is God, and you are not. Right? If he is alive, then you can't just stand pat and do whatever it is that you want to do. If he is alive, then your life is not your own. And to live like it is your own will only end in your death. If he is alive, then you cannot control him, and you cannot shape him and fashion him into what you want him to be. Right? If he's alive, you have to submit to him or perish. Right? You must lose your life in order to gain it. You must take up your cross. You must renounce yourself. And that is a terrifyingly difficult thing to do. I like myself a lot. Right? I just a whole lot. Right? To, to deny myself and to die to myself is an extremely difficult thing. It's actually an impossible thing, Jesus says, apart from the grace of God. So listen, Jesus is actually quite frightening, um, if you really consider it, right? Get out of your mind, long-haired, meek, and mild Jesus. No, this is the God, the creator, and the sustainer of everything that exists. The, the judge that is coming back for his people um, and against those who are not um, his people, right? Jesus should unsettle you, right? Are you responding to him in fear? Right? Is your response to him fear and hesitation? Are you trying to kind of hold him at arm's length? Right? Trying to dictate to him the terms of your relationship? Right? Because he simply will not um, stand um, for that. God doesn't care what we think about how things should go. He is here telling us in this book who he is, what he has done, and what we are to do in response. Right? Are you like the women, responding only in fear, or are you like Joseph? Mark just kind of throws him here in the middle of the story of the women to serve as a, as a contrast for us. Right? 
And this again, the first mention of Joseph in the whole book. We haven't met him before. Right? We don't know anything about him. He's just tagged on here at the end. We're told simply in verse 43 that he was a respected member of the council. That's actually quite shocking. Right? The council was last mentioned in chapter 14, verse 55. It said, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Right? In all likelihood, Joseph was part of this sham trial the night before that condemned Jesus to death. Joseph was a member of the religious authorities that we've repeatedly seen hating Jesus so strongly. But Luke tells us a little bit more about it in 23, verse 15. Luke says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Joseph was apparently one of the few, or maybe the only one, um, who did not agree with the decision to kill Jesus. Why? Why didn't he agree? Well, Matthew tells us in 2757, he writes, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. The twelve disciples are nowhere to be found. But here is this another, this one other unnamed um, disciple, never mentioned before, and he is the only one who is responding to what is happening here in faith. So remember, the women seem to be characterized by fear, but in verse 43, we see Joseph taking courage, Mark says, and going to get Jesus' body. Right? Afraid versus courageous. Fear versus faith. Why would you need courage to go ask um, for a dead corpse? Well, listen. Right? Jesus, it was very dangerous to be seen as a sympathizer to a man who had just been executed for treason. Right? There is always the risk of guilt by association. Right? That's why all the disciples scattered. I don't want to be associated with this guy. He's going to get killed. He might get killed too. But no, here's Joseph, right, coming up and taking courage and claiming Jesus' body. Normally the Romans like to leave the bodies up on the cross for a long time to decay and kind of serve as a warning to passerby who may be considering similar things. But Joseph draws on his courage. He risks his own life. He risks his own position of, of authority. And he goes to Pilate to get the body. And that fact alone tells us that he was a really prominent, powerful, and important person. He had enough of that to, to have direct access um, to Pilate. But it doesn't even seem that Joseph even fully understands what is going on. Right? He's wrapping Jesus. He's laying him in a tomb. Right? Again, this, this cloth that he wraps Jesus in, it's gone. We don't know what it is. It's not the Shroud of Turin. Right? Somebody just made that up. Um, he wrapped Jesus in, in this cloth. He puts him in the tomb. Which again seems to imply that, that he's not expecting the resurrection either. But Mark, for some reason, paints Joseph in a more positive light than almost any other person besides Jesus in the book. He takes courage. He does the best with what he can with the situation. He was the disciple. He was looking for the kingdom of God, and he takes action, right? That's a believer, right? Stepping out in faith, taking action, setting your mind on, and seeking after the kingdom of God. So Mark is here holding out a choice for all of us. Which is it going to be? Right? Joseph or the women? Fear or faith? Flight or fight? Doubt or trust? Listen, you have to choose. Right? The one thing, choose one or the other. Right? You have to do something with Jesus. Right? The ending of this magnificent book just forces 
your hand. It pushes you back to the rest of the story and it practically begs you to decide. The one thing that you cannot do is nothing. All right? The one thing that you cannot do is say, ah, you know, Jesus, no. Listen, love him or hate him. Those are the only two responses that make any sense. Just don't be apathetic about him because that, that makes no sense. Either he was God himself or he was nothing and he does not deserve um, your time. You've got to do something with Christ. So we're at the end, right? We're done. It's kind of sad. It's kind of anticlimactic. We've spent 13 months looking in detail at the identity and the mission of Jesus. And as we've seen over and over again, who he is and what he has done determines what we are to do in response. We've been saying his Messiahship determines our discipleship. Right? What are we to do in response? Well, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book tell us. 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then two verses later, he calls his disciples and he says, follow me. Listen, those three things are the most important things in the world for you to do. I don't care what, it is, what you have on your plate. Right? I don't care if Germany's about to win the World Cup. I don't care if you've got family issues. I don't care if you've got money issues. I don't care if there's, there's a disease. I, I don't care what it is. Nothing else matters except for these three things. Have you repented? Have you believed? And are you following Christ? If you've been here at all over this last year, you should know very clearly who Jesus is and what He has done. Now have you done what he demands. Have you repented and believed and followed? And as we sadly have to leave him for good, let me give you Mark's theme one more time. Like two verses spliced together. This, this is the book. 1, 1 and 10, 45. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's the identity. Here's who he is. Who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is who he is, and that is what he has done. He is God himself come to suffer and die to rescue sinners. <laughs> An amazing story. That's what grace is. That's what the gospel is, right? It is, it's, remember, it's substitution, right? Get it out of your minds. It's not what you do, right? You can't do anything, right? You can't save yourself. Now, the good news of the gospel is what God has stepped in in the person of Jesus Christ and come to do for you on your behalf when you didn't deserve it. It's news. Right? It's not advice to be followed. It is news to be delivered and believed. This is Jesus. This is what he has done. What an amazing story. Well, listen, we're never going to leave it. Right? We're going to spend just as much time in Ruth talking about the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This sets the stage for everything that we're going to do um, from here on out. Right? We never get past it. We never get done with it. God, Paul says in the passage we just read, the gospel is of first importance. Right? We're going to hammer that over and over and over again. Do you know that gospel? Are you resting on the solid foundation of what Jesus Christ has done for you here in this story? Because he's alive. And that is really, really important. Right? Let's, let's go to him and thank him in a word of prayer as we close. Father, we thank you that the story doesn't end um, at the cross. Um, we thank you for the cross. We thank you um, for, for rescuing us. We thank you for the, the great exchange for the substitution of Jesus in our place, taking on our sins and dying the death that we deserve. Father, we thank you that there's more to the story. 
Father, that he came back. Uh, Father, you brought him from death um, to life. You validated the, the, the purchase. You, you confirmed that, that it is finished, um, Lord, that there is life in no one else but Jesus Christ. So we thank you um, for the amazing grace um, that you have given to us through Jesus. Father, I thank you for this wonderful book, um, Lord, that you have given us not just one, but four different accounts of your son Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. Father, I pray that we would never get past it. Um, we finished Mark, Lord, but that doesn't mean anything um, that we're, we're done uh, with Jesus we're done um, with the gospel. No, that's just the foundation, um, Lord, and we're going to keep building on that with every other book um, of the Bible. Father, we thank you for condescending and revealing yourself to us. We thank you for pursuing us and rescuing us when we were running in the other direction. So, Father, again, nothing that I can say, no matter how good or bad it is, can convince anyone in here of the importance of these truths. Father, that you can, Father. And we rest and trust confident in your word, Father. We don't need to manipulate. We don't need gimmicks, Father. All we need is your word and your promise that you will work. Um, through it. And we ask that you continue to do that here this morning, um, here and in, in this place in Woodside as we um, go on into the future. Father, we thank you for Mark. Um, we thank you um, most importantly uh, for what Mark reveals to us about Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came and died as a ransom for us, uh, for his people. He died so that we can live. Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.